And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Nigel Mansell was an unstoppable force at the start of the 1992 season, setting a new record by winning the first five races of the season. The stage was set for Mansell to break what he described as his Monaco jinx, and for the first 70 laps of that year's Monaco Grand Prix around the Principality, he appeared on his way to a record-extending sixth straight win. Then disaster struck. Mansell crawled back to the pits with what he thought was a puncture, more on that later, and Ayrton Senna blasted through into the lead, setting up one of the most famous finishes in F1 history, as Senna used all of his Monaco mastery to somehow fend off a charging Mansell to the chequered flag. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, for this look back to when Mansell's winning streak came to an end in his title-winning campaign are Sam Smith and Mark Hughes. Sam, I'll come to you first. You were quick to volunteer for this episode when we were discussing Series 6. So what's the first thing that comes to mind for you about Monaco 1992? Well, it should be the last three laps, shouldn't it? All that ducking and diving that was going on. But actually, I'm torn between whether it was the genuine exhaustion or just another Mansell-esque sort of dying swan act at the end uh, when he was on the podium or just offset from the podium. Because in those days, I think they had this... um, rather mon- typically monogasque way of uh, of doing the podiums. But, I mean, let's face it, this unfortunate pantomime-esque habit of Nigel's, of the theatrics coming on, that's what I remember, just that sort of, I suppose, the the human touch really after all the the, the tumult of the um, of the race itself I'm, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on this one because the physical drain was one thing but the mental drain of not winning his the race that he always wanted to win monaco you know they he he came he came close in 84 made that mistake and i think he wanted to lay that ghost to rest and and he was denied in the in the closing stages so i'd say that sort of thousand yard stare of Mansell as he as he realized that he'd he'd lost a chance not knowing it was going to be probably his last chance to do to win Monaco that's that's what I remember when I think of Monaco 92. And Mark what's your standout memory? Well I wasn't covering F1 at that time I was writing the occasional F1 feature but I was actually covering the British Touring Car Championship but there was no BTC race that weekend so I went up to Donington where I was doing a feature with Chris Rea who was racing in the Ferrari Challenge in his Dino 308. And that was being prepared by Nigel Mansell's Ferrari dealership, which was based near Poole in Dorset. And Chris, magically for me, because I was there as a fly on the wall, magically he won, he won the race. Um, I was there being this, you know, documenting this rock star playing at being a racing driver. And the race was quite late in the day. It was well after the Monaco Grand Prix. So we were able to watch the Grand Prix on a portable TV in the back of the Mansell truck in the Donington paddock. And uh, Chris then went out and did his race. I watched it from Redgut with Chris's brother, Nick. 
And then as he came back into the paddock afterwards with a gripping grin on his face, he said, well, someone from Mansell's had to win today. <laughs> <laughs> as if Nigel had let the side down by losing the Monaco Grand Prix, but Chris had managed to rescue things by winning a Ferrari Challenge club race at Donington. Yeah, that, that balances <laughs> it out. And uh, yeah, I, it was about, I was going to say, it was about time, uh, Mark, that we had you on for one of the one of the older episodes rather than defaulting to just having you on for the races you were at where you always bring such great insight but when i when we chose you for this one i had no idea you were going to start with that anecdote so uh, it's already been worth getting you into a, an early 90s episode let's hear some suggestions for our audience as well thank you to james payne from the race members club who says it's easy to say the last five laps but roberto moreno somehow qualifying in an andrea moda deserves a mention that was uh, also chosen by david handy rob lomas and lewis among others I tried to encourage you to pick a second thing for this one, given how obvious the first thing probably was. And another popular choice was Ivan Capelli's strange exit from the race, perched on the barrier, which was chosen by Harry and Matt Brown. Good honesty, though, from Simon Ems, who said, honestly, I can't remember anything other than the obvious. So hopefully we can help you with that, Simon. And lastly, there was an interesting theme that cropped up a few times about this being the race that got a few of you into F1. Andy Campbell said, this is the earliest race I can remember watching as a four-year-old kid. Tom Horrocks said he experienced a swell of love for the sport uh, for the first time, which has never dampened since. And Indy Cart said, this is the first race I ever watched and it's what got me hooked on F1. So I think it's great hearing stories like that. We've got something new to plug next because finally, Bring Back V10s has its own merchandise range. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, water bottles and notebooks and we're working on more designs that will give a flavour of the V10 era to be rela released later this year. So head to shop.the-race.com to take a look and if you buy anything, make sure you let me know at Glen Freeman 39 on Twitter and we'll do some shout outs on future episodes. Talking of shout outs, thank you to some of our recent five star reviewers on Apple Podcasts. So thanks to RML1792, iPod Maniac 7, Michael Kist, and Yee 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 for your support. As always, you can submit questions about anything to do with the V10 era of F1 for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, or you can email BringBackV10s at the race.com. And lastly, if you'd like to get early access to new episodes of the show and listen ad-free, plus get your own exclusive Q&A episode after this series has finished, check out the Race Members Club. To find out more, either head to the-race.com forward slash members club or just go to our website and look for Join the Race at the top of the page. So, Monaco 92. Coming into this race, Mansell had a perfect score of 50 points from the first five races. He'd won every race from pole position, and he'd led every lap aside from 31 in the Brazilian Grand Prix that had been led by his Williams teammate Ricardo Patrese. Now, for the first time in this episode, but not the last, let's hear from Nigel. He recently spoke to the race's Josh Suttill about the start of the 1992 season, and he explained his determination to dominate these opening races. When you've been the bridesmaid three times, you know, unless you are um, very foolish, you learn a lot. And the easiest points to gain is not at the end of the season, it's at the beginning of the season. And if you can come out with those starting blocks and, and really hit it well, people have got to play catch up. 
So my philosophy was to come out and really annihilate the opposition as much as possible, which of course we did for five races, which is wonderful. Nigel also said in his mid-90s autobiography, which I think is the best one, I knew that it was vital to throw down the gauntlet to the opposition early, as if to say, look, I am going to win this championship and I'm going to do it by beating you all every time we go out. I dominated 1992 because I was on a mission. Mark, yes, the car was dominant, the brilliant Williams FW14B, my favourite F1 car of all time, and we will come back to the car shortly. But how much did Mansell up his game to make the most of that car advantage? Um, not in terms of his speed, no. I, I'd say he was already operating at an incredibly high level, certainly from 86 onwards. And 92 was his sort of seventh, eighth year of being absolutely on fire in the car. What? But what I guess he took from the near misses of 86 and 87, when he didn't always seem to have the self-confidence to go with that searing speed, probably because of that difficult, conflicted apprenticeship he had, all sorts of personal history reasons why it was so psychologically complex, but it was being in the right place in his own mind to pounce on this incredible opportunity provided by the 14B. So he's finally king in his own territory, if you like, as, as much he's absolutely as he's, he's much as a mere driver ever could be in a team run by Frank and Patrick. Anyway, he's convinced himself that he's absolutely as good as the best there is. And as such, he's, He's conducting a campaign, as you said, as he's, you referenced in his biography. Previously, even when he was in the super fast Williamses of 86, 87, or in his two seasons at Ferrari, when he did produce some staggering performances, it was as if he was just a paid employee who turned up and gave his best and that was it. This time he really was in control of his situation and it had taken him a few years to acquire that inner confidence and blitz those insecurities. Those demons were still there, I'm sure, but he... He had a mastery of his environment by 92 that hadn't been there first time around at Williams. And I think that probably came from Williams having talked him out of retiring at the end of 90. So he felt needed. And he was an incredibly complex character, but also a, a truly incredible performer and one of the most exciting performers a sport's ever seen. Yeah, it came with a lot of showmanship. Um, and then yeah, Sam referenced it earlier on, you know, the, the, the amateur dramatics. And he has to show you how much he's trying and how much he has to make it obvious, which is you could even see in the body language of his car when he was stuck behind Senna. But um, you don't ever underestimate the raw talent just because of the inconsistencies in his early career. They were partly psychological, partly, partly environmental. Um, you know, the loss of Colin Chapman, the total incompatibility of Peter War, who belittled him every opportunity, things like that. But the talent was just off the scale and hadn't been evident to anybody who'd been watching Formula Ford back in 76, 77. It just took him many years to fully access it and to fully harness what was within him but what we were seeing in 92 and 93 in indycar was the full mature expression of it and if you talk to adrian newey about mansell's performances in that car and how they compared to alan prost a year later he will tell you pretty adamantly that had mansell stayed he would have blown prost into the weeds in that type of car because he was just made to drive these cars yeah we uh we get that question a lot actually what if mansell had stayed in 93 and uh yeah, it's good. It's good to provide an answer. It's always good to hear an another voice on that. And yeah, I think it's widely known. And we'll come to Prost shortly because he was in the news at this point. It's widely known that he uh, he won that championship doing 
possibly the minimum that he could. But Williams's dominance in 92 was combined with McLaren being slow out of the blocks by its own high standards of this era. After those five races Mansell had won, reigning champion Ayrton Senna had just eight points thanks to two third places in South Africa and Imola. McLaren had started the year with its 1991 car, then famously for the Brazilian Grand Prix, it brought six cars, three of the 91 MP46s and three brand new MP47s. And that weekend, Senna still qualified two seconds adrift of Mansell at Interlagos. Ron Dennis said the development of the new car was hindered by McLaren's late season push in 91 to keep Williams at bay. And he also said the team's switch to a paddle shift semi-automatic gearbox was proving challenging. Ron added, I think the semi-automatic gearbox on the Williams cost them the championship last year. It lost Ferrari the title the year before that. It could well cost us some points this year. Sam, was Ron right to point to the semi-automatic gearbox and the, and the 91 development push for McLaren's struggles in 92? Or did Williams just completely move the goalposts with the 14B? I think there's some credible basis in what went on before in, in 91 because had it not been for Williams's poor reliability in the first half of that campaign, then Mansell, I think, probably would have been champion. It, it's interesting to read back now and understand that McLaren actually fast-tracked the MP47A to debut into Lagos rather than Barcelona, which was a month further down the line. I think Ron Dennis and his team had actually been monitoring Williams's winter test pace pretty closely and it obviously jolted them a bit and triggered this expediation of getting the the new car on its wheels. I think the emphasis on the semi-automatic gearbox is, is maybe over-egging it a little bit though. You have to recall that in the early 90s we were, we were talking a lot about new technology that had been, you know, that had to be reliability tested exhaustively. So, more often than not, these things were, were given um, were, were used as an excuse to some extent. I think that the system that McLaren developed with Tag Electronics actually had a fly-by-wire uh, system control system that didn't have a throttle cable, but uh, rather had a sensor which controlled the engine speed as well automatically. So. You know, this is similar tech or, or variations were used, obviously, at Williams in that period and, and possibly other cars as well. So something of an excuse to some extent, I think, via Ron there. But, you know, you, what, what you've got to caveat all this with is the fact that um, McLaren had so many resources as that, at that time. It was a super resource team. So it feels a bit thin from that just to isolate the um, the gearbox element there. No, No one knew at the time, but... The overarching thing, I think, was that Ron Dennis was certainly aware that Honda were going to leave F1 at the, night, at the end of 92, or highly likely to leave. And, and legend has it that he was told by Honda at the end of 91. Now, if, if that's the case, um, the disruption that was cultivated by that, whether whether Ron knew it or not, was, was significant. So I think that possibly that sort of more existential thing with Honda leaving was possibly the more unsettling trait throughout 92. Uh, but as you said, Glenn, of course, the the, the FW14B uh, did move the goalpost. There's no doubt about that. I think, you know, with three decades of clearance now and, and sort of looking back on it, it probably stands out as one of the most defining cars in Formula One, in Formula One's history, that the, the way that it dominated and the way that it just shifted, um, shifted the balance of, of power at that time. 
As is always the case in F1, one team dominating led to talk that the rules needed to be changed to shake up the field. Leading the charge on that front over the Monaco weekend was Bernie Eccleston, who held a media lunch where he declared there have got to be rule changes. Bernie said F1 should consider narrower tyres to reduce the performance of the cars, and we did get those for 1993. And he also said refuelling had to come back, which of course we got for 1994. FISA, which was still the sports governing body at this point, was also considering banning carbon brakes to increase braking distances. And with the growing popularity of IndyCar racing in America, the idea of neutralising the race with pace cars was being discussed. However, at this point, F1 was considering a system where the cars would be closed up on track, but the gaps between them on the timing screens wouldn't be eradicated. So after a restart, they'd effectively be racing on aggregate time. That sounds mad to me, but the reason for it was a a concern that it wasn't fair for a driver to lose the advantage they had built up during a race just because the pace car was needed. Mark, what do you think of those suggestions that were being thrown around? Were any of those ideas any good? Oh, they're real rubbish in the main. <laughs> F1 was getting very nervous about the success of IndyCar, especially as it was beginning to threaten to become an international championship, not just a domestic American one. So I think these ideas were a reaction to that, this push for a sort of populism to combat that threat. And instead of becoming more F1, it was trying on for size being less F1, and I think that would have been a big mistake. But the other direction such rethinks were coming from was the dominance of Williams. You know, you looked at IndyCar at that time, and there were ostensibly several different teams and star drivers always in with a chance. Alan Sajuni, Emerson Fittipaldi, Michael and Mario Andretti, Bobby Rail, Danny Sullivan, Rick Mears, and they're driving for teams like Penske, Newman Haas, Gulls Krakow, Rail Hogan. And here in F1, as Williams two seconds a lap faster than the best of the opposition, it was kind of ridiculous. So I think messing about with safety car regs or refueling wasn't going to address that. Active ride was this technological leap, and some pretty big teams had done a really bad job of getting their heads around it. Williams was light years ahead at that time for no other reason than applied brain power. So it was down to the opposition being rubbish rather than F1 being wrong. Yeah, and if we're talking about teams that uh, would end up doing a bad job of active suspension, shout out for Ferrari. Uh, the, the reaction to Mansell's dominance, unsurprisingly, didn't sit well with the man himself. He felt that after four straight years of McLaren winning championships, it was wrong to complain just because someone else had started dominating. Firstly, let's hear what Nigel told us when Josh asked him about the complaints about his dominance. Um, and I mean, McLaren at that time, for one, was one team that if they were braining everybody and coming around and lapping, it was okay. But if someone else seemed to have <coughs> any kind of slight advantage, they would be <coughs> banging the drum. If someone else was in the car, I don't think they'd probably be saying that. Um, I think the whole conversation is pathetic because um, I only won one. Why could they complain just winning one? You know, I mean, give me a break. I earned my right to be there. And <clears throat> you know, we did the job uh, fantastic. And we could have possibly challenged better in 91, but the car wasn't reliable. Um, I understand some people said some, you know, critic things, but I pay no attention whatsoever because the the, the country was on my side, the fans were on my side. I certainly was on my side and, you know, we'd, 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 we paid our dues when you come running up three times. You know, it's, uh, you need a championship and I was just so relieved that we got one. 
So that's what Nigel thinks today. And on a video series called Nigel Mansell's Grand Prix Diary that was made in 1992, he made his frustration very clear at the time as well. Mansell said, where were these people the last four years? The reason they didn't say these things for the last four years is that they're McLaren, Honda, Ayrton Senna supporters. Ayrton had this advantage for the last four years. What's wrong with me having this advantage now? I've had it for five races. You don't win world championships unless the whole package is there. Why should our team be persecuted just because we're doing well now? And that kind of fits with what Mark was just saying there. Mansell also took issue with this in his book. So he's completing the set. He said, whatever advantage I had in 1992, I had worked for 13 years to get and I deserved it. Yes, I won easily with no competition because I drove with all my heart. But because it was me driving, everyone said that it was the car which was doing the winning. When Prost and Senna had done the same thing in the past, it had been them. Sam, there's no question this got under Nigel's skin and, and does today still. But was he right? Was it unfair for people to call for something to be done about his dominance? I mean, in, in a perfect world, it's absolutely unfair. And, you know, I think I've got some sympathy for, for Nigel, but um, it didn't take too much to, to get underneath Nigel's skin uh, throughout his career. But the reality is, just as it is now, really, that consumers of, of sport, in particular, you know, talking about motorsport here, really just don't like domination. I mean, nobody likes to see a completely one-sided contest. It's one thing for us to all sit back now and go, oh, the the FW14B, what a wonderful cutting-edge car and what a legacy. Of course, it has all that. But actually, the reality was that at the time, I can clearly recall almost nodding off on occasions watching some of those races because they were just so completely crushing in in the way that they were executed. Mansell was on pole at Interlagos by 1.2 seconds from his own teammate. Uh, and he won the race by half a minute from Patrese again. You know, they'd lapped the entire field and the fastest lap was 1.7 seconds quicker than the next car. And you know who that was? Who set the third fastest race lap at Interlagos? Ed Straw, are you listening? It was Gabriele Tarquini and his fond metal. So um, don't ask me how that happened. I don't know. But yeah, Did uh, he take a shortcut? He must have done. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the others were on the uh, the original Interlagos. I don't know. But uh, yeah, extraordinary. I had, to, I had to look at that twice when I um, when I checked it out in Autocourse last night. But extraordinary. Anyway, you know, I, I suppose the notion of um, dominance, of, of, you know, of course there were dissenting voices because all anyone wanted was a motor race at the front but it but it happens regularly in most motorsport and has done since the world championship began you know if you go back to the 50s and look at some of the gaps that Fangio won races by you know they're, they're in excess of of at least a minute if not more on occasion so you know Mansell chose to I suppose personalize this situation to be about him fundamentally, which was part and parcel of the the Mansell uh, psyche, as as Mark sort of alluded to earlier, you know, and, and he he did that regularly. But really, I just think the difference between the FW14B's dominance and as opposed to the McLaren in 1988 was that, firstly, Mansell didn't have a teammate that could threaten him consistently, and secondly, Mansell. And as hard as it is to recall, if you were you were British, he, he wasn't particularly fashionable um, internationally in the sense that Senna was. And I think, you know, not having that charisma off the track and being, um, how can I put it, complicated, I think we've used that word already, from a character trait point of view, 
you know, I think that sort of rubbed people up the wrong way and it didn't come across, he didn't come across particularly well throughout 92. You know, the, you know Mansell, Mansell wasn't always humble, even when he was, you know, when he, when he, sort of should have been so i think that was a a constituent part of this um of this and as we see 30 years later it's still winding him up which is which is rather fabulous he's he's obviously mellowed a tiny bit since 92 but even now as you can hear from that clip it, it still tugs at his ego which is um you know it's it's kind of astonishing and, and quite delightful at the same time if i can put it that way looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. We mentioned the emergence of IndyCar earlier, and of course, Mansell would, would go there in 93 as the reigning F1 world champion. IndyCar was a big talking point in F1 circles this weekend in Monaco because... FIA President Max Mosley had just been to the Indy 500 and Max returned from that trip saying that it was high priority for him to bring F1 and IndyCar together under the same rules. Max said there is no fundamental reason why the cars couldn't run to the same regulations. I think it would benefit both forms of racing enormously and help make racing as a whole stronger in the worldwide television market. Sam, F1 and IndyCar running to common rules in the 1990s. What do you think? Good idea? Well, in a, in a sort of utopian world, yeah, great idea. But in reality, no, it's a, an insane idea then and sounds even more unhinged now. Um, I was thinking that Max must not have stayed on to the end of that year's Indy 500 because if he did, he'd have, you know, he'd have seen about seven cars running and and um, and most of them in hospital after that 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 year's events when the temperature dropped so uh, spectacularly. I suspect that this was little more than sort of political posturing. I think by by Mosley, who could maybe see that IndyCar was growing significantly in in '92, but but really it wasn't until Mansell arrived a year later and there were those boom years, of course, that. You know that lasted until the end of the nineties, really. That it that it took off, and they started to race internationally um, in in Australia and, and Japan, Mexico, mainly. I I think that 
you know, these are the points really. I th- M- Mosley wanted to try and have some element of control. I think that's clear. Bernie had sort of tried to do that a little bit earlier around the global picture of racing. And, and don't forget, he was Mosley was only six months into his uh, tenure as FISA president at that time. So he wanted to make some waves um, to protect Formula One. I mean, that's that that was clear. I think he and Eccleston wanted to ring fence Formula One from a territory's point of view, from a TV point of view and promotion point of view. Um, so he was really kind of advocating for IndyCar to come under the auspices of, of FISA, as, as I read it. Uh, but, you know, the likes of Roger Penske and Pat Patrick and um, and Carl Haas were just never going to allow that to happen, no matter what, what sort of deals might have been in place there. So I think it was a... It was probably a non-starter from the get-go. I only remember this as sort of hot air stuff, really, and and sort of posturing, as I said. Any notion of the two cars running together, not not realistic. Uh, technically, operationally, I don't really see, and, and and never really has been, as far as I'm aware. Or, or having said that, you know, a Philippe Gash versus Olivier Griard face-off would have been peak 1992 and guaranteed sort of scorched earth wouldn't it so that would have been fun but apart from that i just don't see that as a as something that could have worked yeah what a shame we didn't get that um it should also be said that the the makings of the mid-90s indycar split were well and truly underway on that side of the pond by this point so uh indianapolis boss tony george was looking for for allies uh and i think he'd he'd tapped up nascar and f1 by this point so yeah a bit, bit of politics going on as well let's get back to Mansell then and he lashed out this weekend after James Hunt claimed on the on the BBC TV commentary that Mansell had signed to stay with Williams for another two years and would likely be joined by Alain Prost as his teammate for 1993. Mansell called it unprofessional to spread rumours like this and he said it wasn't fair on his current teammate Ricardo Patrese. He added, I am mystified by all this because I am dealing with the discussions and James Hunt is not. So what were those discussions then? Mansell had got wind of rumours that Williams' French partners, Renault and Elf, wanted the team to sign Prost. And that's an idea Nigel hated after their tense time together at Ferrari in 1990. So when Frank Williams tried to open talks about 1993 with Mansell between Imola and Monaco, Mansell said he would stay on for the same money as he was on in 1992 if Patrese was kept on as his teammate. Frank responded by asking what Mansell would want if Prost joined the team. Mansell said not only would he want financial compensation, but he wanted written guarantees from the team and all suppliers that he and Prost would have equal status, equipment, technical support and team support. Mansell said in his book, I would be losing my number one status and the dilution of the team's efforts would lead to all kinds of knock-on effects. If I was going to win the world championship in 1992, I wanted to defend it the same way in 1993 and I very much doubted whether that would be possible with Prost in the team. Now, as we discussed in our Spa 92 episode in the last series, we later learned that by this point, Prost had already signed with Williams for 93, but Mansell wasn't told that at this stage. Mark, what do you make of Mansell's approach to this negotiation? Was he right to be so wary of Prost joining this team? Uh, This goes back to the point I was making earlier about him being in charge of his environment and feeling needed. And the recruitment of Prost totally undermined that. Um, And that was a big sort of foundation of of, of Mansell's um, 
comfort zone, really. And a lot of his performances came from that. And I think the management at Williams didn't really get that dynamic. Drivers were just an inconvenient pain for them, especially high-maintenance ones like Nigel. So they, they didn't really cater to the unseen dynamic, the stitching beneath it all, that level of personal performance that you could extract from someone like Mansell being in the right place in his head. They just sort of <laughs> typically just blunder on and sign another one. And Mansell, being Mansell, reacted by leaving, feeling underappreciated yet again, despite this being the moment of his greatest achievement. And Williams went on, just keep switching light bulbs for the next decade or so and making several of those light bulbs world champions along the way, but never with any real deep foundation or connection, the sort of deep partnerships like Michael Schumacher at Ferrari or Lewis Hamilton at Mercedes and maybe now Max Verstappen at Red Bull. These are true partnerships. They weren't light bulbs, but that just wasn't how Williams was wired up. And that's what Nigel ran afoul of. And he never did find that sort of partnership. Now, Prost had almost ended up racing for Ligier in 1992, and that's a story we'll cover when we get around to doing an episode on that year's season opener in South Africa. But without him, Ligier were having a miserable season. They were yet to score a point with Eric Comas and Thierry Boutsen, and Ligier would leave Monaco at risk of falling into pre-qualifying, thanks to Bertrand Gachot picking up a point for LaRousse. So there you go, Ed. I know you're listening. LaRousse, shout out. Team boss Guy Ligier didn't stay for the whole weekend. It was reported that he stormed out on the Thursday in dismay at the team's poor performance and having been booed by the crowd while walking into the pits. Comas said the team's 1992 car, designed by Frank Durney, wasn't bad, but he said it was inconsistent and never reacts twice in the same way with identical settings. Durney mentioned his time at Ligier in an interview with Motorsport magazine in 2016. He said he loved Guy Ligier, but he described him as brash, quick-tempered and strong-willed and said he would change his mind on big decisions based purely on what he read in the main French media outlets. Derny also said that in comparison to Comas and Bootsen, Prost was astonishing when he tested this car and until then, Derny had thought Bootsen was pretty good. But Mark, in before... The Bring Back V10's era, Ligier was once a, a big, successful, fascinating team. How much of a shell of its former self was Ligier by this point? I think the game had moved on and the original ex matra people who had been such a part of why Ligier was so potent in the late 70s, early 80s, had pretty much retired by then. The team was never that well-funded and it never really bought into the expansion of F1 in the way that, say, McLaren did, you know, how they ramped up their investment. Um, and aggressively, you know, chase new opportunities commercially. Um, uh, nor did they aggressively chase new technology in the way Williams had done. <clears throat> so they were still operating like a little cottage industry and then uh, the sport was beginning to pass them by, sadly. And Sam, given what we've heard about that Prost test, which, as I say, we'll cover in more detail uh, in the future, do you think the team was being let down by its drivers in 1992, perhaps more than the car? I don't think they particularly helped the cause, from what I recall, which was a major surprise, really, because Bootsen was winning Grand Prix the, you know, a few seasons before, and Comas was the next big tricolore hope, wasn't he? So I remember speaking to Comas, actually, a few years ago, and he, and he felt very hard done by the whole Prost experiment, which, you know, took up quite a bit of pre-season testing time and and sort of shifted the the outlook for the team and, and some of the targets, I think. Uh, psychologically, that, that can't have done he or 
other aspects of the team much many favours, I think. And he, don't forget, he was a young driver. So I think Eric suffered a bit there, and I have some sympathy for him in terms of, you know, it didn't seem he had a tremendous amount of support from within the team. And there were a couple of clashes, weren't there, with, with Boots, and I think certainly one at Hungara Ring and potentially one at Interlagos, I think. So when they arrived at Monaco, there was there was already a bit of friction, I think, between them. You know, Comas wasn't completely terrible that season. I think he, he out-qualified Boots and out, certainly outscored him on points. In fact, Thierry yeah, didn't get on the points board until the, the last very attritional race at Adelaide. So you can't help but feel Boots and was maybe a bit washed up by then and, and a sort of lost interest in F1 to some extent. And I think he's more or less admitted that in subsequent interviews um, over the years. So I, I think what makes it all the, all the worse is that on paper, they had so many great things going for them. So it appeared Renault engines, strong technical head in, in Frank Derny and, and two decent drivers, one experienced, one sort of up and coming. So, but it just didn't happen. I think, you know, Mark touched on some of the points there, which, um, contributed to to that sort of inertia within the team and and it was just a whole load of frustration so um i think the immediate results that brundle and blundell got a few months later with a, a similar package in 93 tend to to probably make uh, all those points uh, stick even even all these years on Talking of struggling teams, this was of course the weekend where Roberto Moreno achieved the unthinkable and got an Andrea Moda onto the grid. Having come through pre-qualifying, then ended up 26th out of the 30 cars vying for a spot in the race. We talked about this in depth on our Andrea Moda episode, but we've got to do a little stop off about it here too. Incredibly, Moreno was 20th after first qualifying on Thursday. Then on Saturday, he hung on by three hundredths of a second to deny Eric van der Poel's Brabham. Moreno limited his laps in that Saturday session to save the car. He completed the fewest of anyone in the session with just five. And when he spoke about this on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast, he said that if he'd been able to do more laps on the Saturday, he wouldn't have qualified last because he could have gone quicker. Sam, what do we put this remarkable feat down to then? Is it a heroic performance from Moreno? Or did this tell us that actually the Simtech-designed Andrea Moda wasn't a bad car, it was perhaps just being run by a team that was out of its depth? Uh, both of those things, I think. Um, Moreno was a really decent driver. He was famously tenacious, but I'm, I'm sure that if Gary Anderson were, were here, he'd tell you just how talented a driver he was because he, he took him to the 1988 Formula 3000 title with, with Bromley Motorsport on a what can only be described as a frayed shoestring of a budget that season. And... Uh, you know, he, even then he was the underdog's underdog. So you you could bank on him when the chips were really down. And I think with Andrea Moda, we're talking a whole new meaning to to that phrase, aren't we? The the, the car. I don't think it was a particularly bad car. I think you know Nick Worth was was extraordinarily young when he um, designed that car. And we know some of the the history. I think that's been talked about on previous episodes of where that car came from but the, the, the operationally and, and technically there was nothing in that team that was going to help things along and I think Moreno has to take eternal credit for, for getting that thing on a grid any grid to be honest with you and, and Monaco as we know the drivers can lower let's say lower level in terms of the grid not in talent but lower level equipment wise you could you could make some extraordinary uh, progress. I mean, if you, if you look at 
Monaco Grand Prix around that time, you'll see some amazing things. I mean, Pierre-Henri Raphael qualified, I think, 18th or 19th in the 89 race in the old Colony, which, you know, was run by five people and, you know, a couple of, you know, 14-year-old gophers or something. So, you know, these things these things did happen at Monaco where the driver could make a difference. And um, what what I what certainly what is what is written in, in Autocourse is that um, it was reported that Moreno actually didn't get a new set of tyres in that second phase of the Saturday qualifying. I don't know if this is well known. I've not read it before. They they overtalked his 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 um his wheels. So they couldn't actually get the wheels off. I think they must have overtaught them when they were cold. So they couldn't get a fresh set of wheels on, uh, tyres on the car. And I think that, I don't know if Roberto has, has forgotten that detail or not. And I'm sure he's chosen to forgotten a lot of details about that season. But that that's one that I'd not heard before. It is reported, um, Mo Hamilton reported it in Autocourse that season. And I, I find that quite fascinating because it tallies with it doesn't tally with the way that Moreno remembers it. So if if that's factually accurate, and I'm sure it is, then, you know, the, the Moreno could actually have gone significantly uh, quicker, but for, the, you know, for the reason that um, hasn't been subsequently reported before, it'd be interesting to see if, uh, if he recalls that if, if prompted, but yeah, I mean, getting, uh, getting that thing onto the grid was um, extraordinary. So there you go. An Andrea Moda story where the wheels didn't fall off because they'd been over talked. Let's mention Brabham, though, because Van der Poel failing to qualify was a big blow for this team, which was was clinging on by its fingernails at this point. Damon Hill was just behind him in 28th, so he almost also missed out on the race. Brabham's future was in huge doubt around this time. Creditors had tried to get the team wound up, but that failed because the winding up order was against Middlebridge, which was believed to be the owner of the team. However, Middlebridge had been renamed, so the company name that the winding up order was placed against no longer had an existing business attached to it. So apparently that meant you couldn't wind it up. This was just the beginning of more attempted ownership changes and management reshuffles, though, as Brabham limped on for a few more races in 92. Mark, we've already talked about the demise of Ligier. The demise of Brabham was much more severe. How sad was it to see this famous team so obviously by this point just circling the drain? Yeah, it was very sad. Ultimately, this went back to... Bernie Eccleston no longer haven't had a use for his own F1 team, as he said about running the whole sport. So it had been sold to progressively lower-powered entities until it was fighting for its survival as we arrive in 92. And it had taken about seven years to get to this point. And, you know, just emphasise, no matter how glorious the history of the team, if, if you didn't keep up as F1 expanded, you got left behind. And it would have taken um, a, a, a visionary with... with proper deep pockets um or the a way of a, a way of generating income as with ron dennis buying uh, buying of mclaren a few years earlier for this not to have happened um, but brabham was on the way out and it would be followed not that many years later by lotus as for hill he ended up four tenths down on van der Poel, despite not being able to use first and second gear damon wrote in his book that he barely fitted in the car saying my legs were crammed in as far as they could go and crushed against the side of the chassis. It was so tight that the gear lever gate was almost under my right leg. I could only use four of the six gears because it was so cramped, not what you need at Monaco. The engine's power curve was quite violent and then a bit like a tractor at times, thanks to me not being able to use the lower gears. 
There was no power steering, and yet despite these handicaps, it was strangely exciting to drive a no-hoper car. And Hill was dovetailing this no-hoper experience on race weekends with testing for Williams in between, so he really was experiencing both ends of the competitive F1 spectrum. But he was adamant that driving competitively, even in a bad car, was teaching him things he couldn't learn from pounding round in a Williams during the week. Sam, does Damon deserve praise for taking this Brabham challenge on? Do you think, in the end, did it make any difference to the fact that Williams chose him to race for the team in 93? Or could he have got that drive anyway if he'd just been their test driver? I I think he deserves a lot of recognition for being, well, first of all, brave enough to drive that car, as as, as does Eric Vanderpoel. But also to go to a Grand Prix, be more or less certain you're not going to get onto the grid. That's a tough psychological place to be. And that has to give you a bit of added backbone, which I'm sure it did for Damon. Uh, he, he knew professional adversity and he, he knew how to wrestle it. So showing that he could do it in a bad car at that stage of his career was um, something that he'd done before. But at F1 level, something that he realised would, would catch the attention of 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 people um, in the paddock. Did it make a difference to getting him the Williams drive? I think it probably contributed to it yes in the sense that frank williams instinctively appreciated uh drivers that that had grit and determination didn't know how to stop fighting i mean alan jones keke rosberg mansell classic examples of that although a very different character from those three i think frank probably gave a great deal of of credence to, to damon's tough start in formula one so yeah you know it was it was painful at the time but i think it, it certainly contributed um to getting into to frank's mind when he when he had to make a decision on on Patrese's replacement um in um in 93 so yeah i mean you know the hard yards are earned in formula one uh when you're at, at, at that uh that end of the grid we briefly mentioned Lotus earlier. Uh, they had to drag themselves out of qualifying trouble from Thursday to Saturday at Monaco. Mick Hacken and Johnny Herbert were 26th and 27th after first qualifying. And this was despite Herbert having the new promising 107 chassis. Hakkinen had been struggling on with the ageing 102D car on the Thursday. But for Saturday, Lotus had a second 107 in Monaco after it had been shaken down in the UK earlier that week. Both drivers comfortably made it into the race with Herbert qualifying 9th and Hakkinen 14th. But Johnny wrote in his book uh, that the moment Hakkinen got his hands on the 107 was a turning point in their close relationship as teammates. Johnny said... As well as having a laugh off the track, we'd also help each other on it by sharing little bits of information. This all changed when we got the new car, and I'm pretty sure Mika's manager, Keki Rosberg, must have had something to do with it. By that time, McLaren had started showing an interest in Mika, so I completely understand why the change came. With a team like McLaren showing interest, he had to pull the ladder up and start building brand Mika. In his position, I'd have done exactly the same thing. Things were never quite the same, but I knew it was nothing personal. It was simply a career move. Mark, if this change in approach from Hackenham was a result of Keki Rosberg's influence, was it a smart piece of advice to tell Mika to get more serious and, and start being a bit more selfish to progress his own career? Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, Johnny's natural persona, is, as you know, is a brilliant and giggly. That's just how he is. He's a great company and, and just a sweet guy. And he absolutely needed that to maintain his equilibrium after the terrible foot injuries in 1988. 
So it's easy to fall in with that funny silliness of Johnny's. And Mika probably did at first when he first arrived in F1, as Johnny would have felt like a, a welcome, friendly beacon in this cutthroat adventure of F1 that Mika was just embarking upon. But yes, as he became more in, familiar in his environment and the necessity was pressed upon him to deliver and with Ron Dennis taking an interest and Keki being very aware of this and knowing all too well the personality of Ron Dennis, he will for sure have impressed upon Mika how important it was for Ron to get the right perception of Mika. If there was any perception that he wasn't serious enough, Ron wouldn't have liked it. It was an easy switch for Mika to make because he was always extremely serious about his talent and his wish to demonstrate it. Let's get into the race then, where Mansell was starting on pole, having out-qualified teammate Patrese by eight tenths, with Senna 1.1 seconds off pole in third, joined on the second row by Jean Alessi in the atrocious Ferrari F92A, but more on that later. As always with Monaco, the start was a key moment of the race. Mansell held on to the lead from pole, but at the first corner, Senna sprung a last-second move on Patrese to nab second. Patrese said he was taking too much care not to have any problem with Nigel when Senna surprised him on the inside. Senna said, I went for it at the last moment to not give Ricardo any indication, otherwise he would have closed the door. And he added that if Patrese had got through the first corner ahead of him, Senna would never have got past him during the race. Sam, what did you make of this move? Was it brilliance from Senna or was Patrese caught napping? Uh, I think the napping triggered the latent brilliance, didn't it? Um, which was uh, always on tap from the Senna point of view. You know, for a driver of Patrese's experience and someone who'd won at Monaco, albeit a decade before, yeah, you know, you've got to shut down the, the inside line into Sandoval. You know, the irony is he got a really good start as well and, and just, yeah, just seemed to be a bit asleep. Yes, there was the element of surprise, but you, you give Senna a glimpse of a gap and he's going to find a way through it, isn't he? Um, and, and that proved to be for Patrese to say he was watching Mansell's uh, rear, maybe tells you all you need to know about the, the dynamic in, in 1992 in terms of uh, where the power lay in the Williams team. And, and Patrese was ultimately a bit of a shadow of his early 91 self when he, he, you know, for quite a few races, he got the upper hand on Mansell, but it had, completely gone by then and Mansell just just pummeled him into submission didn't he so on this occasion at Monaco it worked against um it worked uh, against Williams and, and Ricardo he just had a, a very um nondescript run to, to third I, I I can't recall much of Patrese's race I mean he harried Senna for a bit in the in the first sort of stint if you call it that and the first portion of the race and but you you look at the stats and his fastest lap was two and a half seconds off Mansell's who yes had fresh good years but you know he was still 0.6 I think off Senna who was clearly in the, the the less competitive of the two packages so yeah I think I think it kind of set the um it set the tone for a pretty nondescript race from from Patrese, who just, I think it's been well documented, just couldn't get the same, um, couldn't muster the same level of confidence to get the best out of the um, the, the, the gizmos and the, um, the, the grip that that car could give. Behind the front three, Alessia and Michael Schumacher were going at it, swapping places twice on the opening lap. 
Schumacher got ahead of Alesi for fourth at the start, only for Alesi to dive back ahead into Mirabeau. On lap 12, Schumacher tried to reverse their positions again with a lunge into the Lowe's hairpin and they collided. Alesi's car spun across the front of Schumacher, damaging the Benetton's front wing slightly and also ripping a big hole in the Ferrari's side pod. Somehow they both continued without losing any places and they actually they only lost around three seconds to Patrese uh, with this incident. Alesi soldiered on until the damage eventually forced him to retire, while Schumacher would later push Patrese hard for third, but couldn't find a way through. Mark, how would you assess that clash at, at the hairpin, uh, Alesi v, v Schumacher? What, what did you make of it? Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Uh, Schumacher's, it was a bold dive, but it was only half completed. It was He wasn't properly alongside. It was more a case of, let's try to get the apex and block Alessi. And, and John refused to budge and just sat it out with him around the outside until inevitably they touched. John half spun, but sort of half blocked the track in doing so. I mean, and Schumacher stayed behind. Just a recent incident in my book. Yeah, the sort of thing you're going to get in Monaco, certainly when you when you have... Uh, early era Schumacher and Alesi fighting over the same piece of track. Schumacher's Benetton teammate Martin Brundle would finish behind him in fifth, but only after some adventures of his own. Brundle clipped a barrier breaking for the chicane while pressuring Gerhard Berger and he had to pit for a new front wing. He came back through to fifth, passing some slower cars and of course moving up as others retired. Afterwards, Brundle said, I feel happy in one way, but not in another. Fifth place is okay, but when it could have been higher, it's natural to feel some disappointment. Sam, this was a great recovery from Brundle, but given he was seventh when he damaged his wing and the top four cars at the finish were all running ahead of him already at that point, was his claim that he could have finished higher than fifth without needing to get that new wing perhaps a bit misplaced? Um, it's it's difficult to speculate, but I think what we can say is that he was plainly quicker than Berger, but just couldn't get through. He had a few lunges, and he almost capitalised on that um, on that Alacy and Schumacher incident, and, and had a sniff at Portier, but it didn't come off. I think you know Martin might have um, pulled up to Schumacher's rear rear wing, but would he have got past his teammate in say the last remaining thirty laps? I think it's doubtful, to be honest. I mean, we, we saw in the previous round at Imola that Martin pretty solidly held Schumacher off when the, the, the sub-positions were reversed from, from Monaco. They were running fifth and sixth at the time, and I think for the first 20 laps or so, Martin was, I wouldn't say comfortable, but he, he certainly was repelling Schumacher there. But I can't see Michael allowing his, his teammate any kind of sniff at, at Monaco. Having said that, you know, Martin could make things happen around that. He, he had some pretty amazing races i mean 89 and that brabham when he i think he had a battery replaced and then came back from the rear of the field to get uh to get some points or a point was was pretty special in 94 he had a great race there i think finished second overtook Berger. so he could he could he could have a nibble and he could get he could seem to make passes he could execute passes that others really didn't um weren't able to do um mirabeau was always a a nice place for for brundle i have memories of him taking a few drivers at, at mirabeau over the years but on that occasion i think um any notion of 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 really making strides beyond schumacher was was always going to be difficult um so yeah i think um 
yeah, you know, there could be a, I suppose you could look at an alternative universe where, where Martin did have that nibble at Mirabeau, took Schumacher out, uh, what chased down Patrese, took a glorious podium, affecting Michael's mental state and then going on to assert himself in, in the team and taking back-to-back titles in 94 and 95. Or am I getting a bit carried away with myself here, Glenn? Is that, is that a bit too fast? Yeah, I, I think the listeners don't have the benefit of seeing your facial expression while you're delivering <laughs> that massive stretch. <laughs> yeah, and, and, Schum- yeah. and Schumacher would have gone to McLaren and, and sort of, you know, torched himself in exploding Peugeots in 94. That would have been, yeah, alternative realities. I think I think we need to nip that in the bud right now, don't we? Yeah, those always go down well on this uh, on this show. But anyway, that's Schumacher's teammate taken care of. Let's face it, Michael wasn't going to let Martin through. Uh, what about Alacy's teammate? We mentioned him earlier. Ivan Capelli had qualified eighth, which wasn't too shabby for him in that rubbish Ferrari. He made it a long way into the race, but on lap 61, he hit the wall and damaged his steering in Casino Square. And by the time he made it out of the swimming pool section and headed towards La Rascasse, the, the damaged car swapped ends on him. But rather, this sums up Capelli's season, doesn't it? Rather than simply crunch into the barrier, somehow the left rear wheel rode up it, leaving the Ferrari perched almost on its side, facing oncoming traffic. Motorsport magazine said at the time it was sad to see the steady decline of a charger, while Autosport wrote that Capelli really needed a points finish to consolidate his shaky standing within the team, as by now there were already rumours about his future Capelli said in 2020 that he spent the first half of that season driving the 1992 car with a 1991 gearbox as Ferrari's only working transverse gearboxes were given to Alessi and Capelli described it as an absolute disaster. Mark, I want to pick up on that line from Motorsport. How tough was it to watch this driver who'd been capable of giant killing performances at March slash Leighton House Suddenly, he looked completely at sea in what was supposed to be his big break. Yeah, he'd driven some beautiful races in that Leighton house. I was at uh, the 1990 British Grand Prix. I was at Stowe on the inside, and I'd had the stopwatch on him as he closed down the gap to the race-leading Ferrari of Alain Prost before it broke again. Uh, he was a very technically proficient driver. He had a good understanding of vehicle dynamics, which is the one thing that Alessi had no clue about, but... Unless he was the star at Ferrari, and when he tried the F92A, he pronounced it wonderful. And Capelli couldn't believe the team were believing Alessi because he knew how bad the car was. And it was almost an exact parallel of Ronnie Peterson and Nicky Lauda with the March 721X of 1972. Ronnie was a superstar then, and Nicky was just a, a pay driver. And the superstar was listened to when he, when he said the car was great because that's what they wanted to hear. And the lower status driver was ignored when he correctly pointed out the car was rubbish. Uh, Ivan is not a forceful, forceful personality. He's a, he's a sensitive, intelligent soul. And it's really sent him on a downward spiral in 92. And his career never really recovered from that. Uh, if the 92 car had been good, Capelli's career could have been very different. Let's talk about Mansell and Senna then. We can't put it off any longer. From the start, Mansell disappeared up the road and Senna initially had a queue of cars building up behind him. Uh, eventually, he started to ease away from them all, including Patrese. And we mentioned Patrese's anonymous race. He complained of a lack of rear grip and switched his focus to defending third place from Schumacher. Senna said that in the middle of the race, even once Mansell was out of sight and with Patrese no longer a factor behind, he kept pushing on on the off chance something would happen to Mansell. But something almost happened to Senna. He arrived at Mirabeau on lap 60, 
to find that Michele Alberto's footwork had spun and stopped across the circuit, which cost Senna around nine to ten seconds. Senna said, I nearly hit his car. I had to stop completely. Those seconds were very valuable for the late stage of the race. I was counting on something happening to Mansell. That's why I'd kept pushing. Now, of course, something did happen to Mansell, which we'll come to next. Mark, at the end of Mansell's outlap after his his unexpected pit stop, that was lap 72 of 78, he was five seconds behind Senna and the chase was on. If that gap had been 14 or 15 seconds instead without this Alboreto spin that held Senna up, would Mansell still have caught him before the end? Um, six laps, car advantage of two seconds a lap, New tyres possibly making it more like three seconds if he'd had a clear track. Yeah, he'd probably still been right on the McLaren's tail before the end. Um, he still wouldn't have got past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> we'll, we'll just dissect the battle a bit more. But let, let's get into what happened to Mansell then. After Senna's delay, uh, which obviously wasn't seen on the TV <laughs> because it's Monaco, uh, Mansell was leading the race by nearly half a minute when he felt something let go in the tunnel and he nearly lost control. Mansell thought he had a puncture, so he immediately came into the pits for a tyre change, but the tyre was still fully inflated. In the days and weeks after the race, all sorts of theories were thrown around about what happened, but the most credible seemed to be that a wheel nut had come loose but then jammed itself. That made Mansell's pit stop take longer than... It should have. And to uh, to diss the TV director again, we didn't even see Nigel's pit stop. Um, if you want footage of that, you had to look to the 1992 season review where they had a camera stationed in the pits. Um, so all these key things were happening in this race where nothing had been going on and we didn't see any of them. Um, but Mansell's pit stop, if you watch the footage that's on the season review, it looks like it took around 10 or 11 seconds with the jammed wheel nut. Mansell said that as he left the pits, he knew the race was probably lost even though he'd now be hunting down Senna with, as Mark described, a much faster car anyway, and he was on new tyres. Sam, try to answer this question if you can without the benefit of hindsight. At the time, did you think that the combination of Mansell on fresh tyres, would he have a real shot at passing Senna somewhere, or was he doomed as soon as he'd lost the lead? It was obvious he was going to catch him. Um, and at first you thought, well, he's going to find a way through because... It was Mansell, and he always does, doesn't he? But, you know, when you look at the previous four or five Monaco Grand Prix, they've been, I think, pretty much been led lights to lights to flag, mainly by by either Senna or Prost. I mean, actual battles for the lead, um, let alone in the last few laps when, when desperation and adrenaline really comes to the fore. It's a complete rarity. I think as soon as... Mansell caught Senna, you started to doubt he could cleanly get away past. It just became more and more noticeable how closely confined and how actually um, there was really just the, the one line. And remember, at this stage of the race, the marbles offline were horrendous. So not only was it Monaco with very limited opportunity to overtake, there was essentially a, you know, almost like a wet and dry line, really, in, in all but name. The more that that battle went on, the more you thought there was just no way um, that Mansell was gonna was gonna get through, and, and and Senna was was never going to pass up the opportunity for a for a fifth win at Monaco. You know, he'd he'd gone through that race 
hoping for a miracle, hoping for a chance. And, and, and it was a gift he was going to gleefully unwrap and, and savor. Uh, and he, and he did, even though, you know, the, the whole Alberetto incident, I mean, it could have been even worse for him if he'd have lost, you know, if he'd have lost, um, uh, more time, it could have been even, even more difficult for, for, for Senna. But ultimately I think, you know, I think we'll come on to the, the, the techniques that Mansell employed in trying to find a way past, but, as Monaco has so often proved, if you don't have DRS or you don't have um, methods such as weather or um, variabilities, it's it is an almost impossibility to make a clean pass without contact and, and compromising each other's races. This was the era before tyre stops were a regular thing in every race. So by this stage, Senna, Senna was on 70 lap old tyres but he still managed to up his pace to almost match his fastest laps from earlier in the race. So he's doing everything he could to delay Mansell getting to him. Of course, Mansell did get there and what followed was one of F1's most famous battles to the finish with Mansell ducking and diving all over the track, trying to find a way through and Senna placing his car as cleverly as he could in all the right places to prevent the Williams getting a run on him. Senna said, when I realised I was in the lead, I had nothing else to give. The tyres were completely worn out. They were good for the whole race, but they were worn out. He had new tyres. He was coming with everything. So I knew we would be in for a major one the last three laps. It was exciting, but very difficult because he was several seconds faster than me every lap. And I had no grip to put the power down. So it was like driving around on ice. Once Mansell had regained his composure after that collapse before the podium ceremony that Sam mentioned at the start, Nigel said, I think we were both driving way over the limit on the last six laps. I must compliment Ayrton. He pretty much second-guessed every move I tried to do. And in Nigel's book, he added, I tried everything to get past him, but Ayrton knew the, the track like the back of his hand and he knew how to make his car a little wider at those places to defend his position. So Senna held on to claim his fifth Monaco win, equaling Graham Hill's record, which he would surpass a year later. So Mark, we've we've talked about the fact that you said there was no way Nigel was getting through. In that scenario, does any driver other than Senna succeed in holding Mansell off to the finish? Did Senna's brilliance around Monaco count for anything in this battle? I think the reality of it is that any pretty much any competent F1 driver put in that situation could have held them off. I believe it's it's Monaco. You've you've track position. You can be three seconds off the pace and still be okay because you can place your car in all the right places. And the only way of passing would be to barge by to have contact somewhere, maybe at the hairpin or like at Raskas. We saw Jules Bianchi do to Kamui Kobayashi in 2014. Um, but short of that, uh, Senna had him covered. It, it didn't really require any mastery or Senna genius to, to do it. I mean, Senna was a genius and he could pull out some extraordinary performances, but that that wasn't required of him to keep Mansell behind in this situation. It was um, he was he was just in the, the the stronger situation. Now, at the time, Mansell was very complimentary towards Senna for how he drove. He said Senna was entitled to do everything he did. He drove fantastically and he was very fair. However, Nigel doesn't think Senna would get away with defending like that today. So let's hear another clip from our interview with him to see how he feels about this battle in 2022. It's a good question, but let's just review something here. With the present day regulations, how many stop-go penalties would a Senna got for blocking? Yeah. You know, it was Ill it's illegal today to drive like that. 
And I think what I take out of Monaco was two titans of the sport, racing tooth and nail, and we got within a quarter of an inch of the car, the rear wing, the front wing, we never touched. I sometimes reflect on that and think, maybe I should have given him a punch and hit him up the back and bust my front wing or something and won the race. But I'm a sportsman, you know, I try to get past in a sporting way. He shut the door in an unsporting way, there's no question. But the spectacle showed two drivers at the extremes of their talent, being able to drive around Monte Carlo with concrete walls, barriers, a whole lot, not hitting anything and, and putting on a hell of a show. I think it's fair to say Nigel doesn't come across as bitter there and he's not saying what Senna did was illegal in 1992. But Sam, did Senna cross a line in the way he defended? And to pick up on one of Nigel's points there, would Senna get penalties for driving like that today? Was it that bad? I don't think it was, no. I, I don't see anything problematic in the way he defended his position in the lead. There's a couple of occasions he defends into to back after being slow out of the chicane. But because of the narrowness, narrowness of the track there, he just he just has to place his car in the middle and, and, and Nigel has to make alternative arrangements. But you don't see any, you know, there's no brake testing, you don't see any late moves under braking or overt weaving. I don't think it would translate into a penalty today at all. I, I don't see that. One thing I don't think anyone has really discussed uh, properly is, you know, did, did, did Nigel actually race smart in those last four laps? Did he make the most of what he had? Fresh tyres, better engine, better traction out of Portier. You know, I, I don't know if he did. He was an instinctive racer. Of course he was. I mean, you can't deny uh, someone who was the architect of so many utterly brilliant moves like Stowe in 87 and Hungara Ring, that one on Johansson and Senna or, or, or the Peraltada, the famous one with, with Berger in 1990 you know you just can't argue against that he was he was the best overtaker in terms of instinctive brawny overtaking I don't think anyone would doubt that so but to me Monaco he, he just looked like he'd lost his cool a little bit was he wasn't really planning his attack properly that that might be a bit controversial I don't know but it, you know that the, the, I think Nigel was doing what Nigel did he was driving on pure feel adrenaline emotion you know obviously that emotion being sort of anger which he's entitled to have after dominating that race um you know the previous 70 odd laps were, were his it was a bit of a cruise in a way so in that respect you've got to feel for the guy because um i think i don't think anyone would dispute that he didn't deserve to win at least one monaco grand prix but it was uh, it was it was cruelly denied him, but in the in the most mansell way. Um, in hindsight, he may not have had to make that pit stop, but but who knows? I I think ultimately, it, there was nothing in that battle that that sort of raised the hackles on anyone, and and um, I think I think for Nigel to question it in the context of today's rules and regulations is a, is a, is a little bit a uh, little bit flimsy, really. So let's let's look into the battle and Mansell's side of it in a bit more detail. Uh, Motorsport magazine wrote at the time that Senna told his McLaren engineers, whenever I expected him to challenge, he wasn't there. He always seemed to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Other drivers who weren't named said that Mansell's scrambling all over the road behind Senna looked dramatic, but just made his tyres dirty and that he should have dropped back and given himself a proper run at Senna somewhere. 
Mansell and Senna also had an amusing exchange in the press conference where Mansell said claims about Renault having a massive power advantage were misplaced because he lost ground on Senna through the flat out tunnel whenever he was tucked up behind him, to which Senna said maybe Williams should have run a bit less wing. Mark, Sam's sort of set the scene for us uh, already, and we've heard there what, what Senna said uh, to his engineers. Looking back at this battle, could or perhaps should Mansell have done anything differently? Oh, I, I think he probably, if, if you scientifically dissect and look at what he was doing. Um, no, I think he was probably um, just as Sam said, driving on instinct, and there was probably more he could have done technically, um, and in terms of when he got the power down, where he placed himself, giving himself a bit more room to manoeuvre when when behind. But ultimately, I don't think it would have made any difference. Senna could just place his car where wherever it needed it to be, and. Um, yeah, as I say, short of contact, I don't think there was any way through. But no, I think Nigel was driving very much. Um, he he he, want, he he felt constrained and that he wasn't going to get through. But I think it's always in Nigel's mind how things look, and I think he wanted to make it look obvious that he was trying really hard. Look at me, look look how hard I'm trying to win this race, rather than you know thinking about right, what do I actually need to do. Um, but I don't think it ultimately would have made any difference. It was just a matter of um, <laughs> style, really. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, this did, as everybody mentioned uh, when they got in touch with our Twitter question. One of the most famous finishes of a Grand Prix of all time. Even though I think, as we've mapped out here, <laughs> there was a very, very uh, slim chance that you'd actually see a, a position change. But as Nigel said in one of the clips, actually, great to see two. Great drivers, that close, no contact, um, a, a fascinating battle. So that's it for Monaco 1992. Thanks to Sam and to Mark for sharing your recollections of that weekend. And a special thank you to Nigel Mansell for sparing some time for us to talk about the early parts of his 1992 season. We'll release the full uncut version of that interview to the Race Members Club at some point after this series has concluded because we had a, a longer chat with, with Nigel and it was it was good fun. Next time we're jumping forward to the 21st century when the man responsible for the dominant Williams FW14B of 1992, the one and only Adrian Newey, made headlines when he very briefly decided he wanted to leave McLaren to join Jaguar. Athletic.